This is transmission two of seven, sent five years after the bomb was dropped on New York. My name is Elle, and this is what I saw. In the event of an unanticipated nuclear attack, try to get as much mass between you and the explosion. If you are outside at the time of impact, this can include such things as hills or buildings. These will absorb the heat created during the explosion. If possible, seek shelter in a basement, as being underground can reduce radiation exposure by a factor of 10. And remember, your response has to be immediate no matter what you do. Page 15 of the Atomic Survival Guide. It hit in waves. There was a rumbling from somewhere, far off. As it started to come closer, I opened my eyes and stared at Don's face. I tried to remember every crease, every freckle. Panicked thoughts washed through me, and I clenched my jaw. We don't know if this is going to work. We don't know if this is going to work. We don't fucking know if this is going to work. It was like the earth above us had been shaken loose, a carpet, and then unrolled right above us. We were children hiding beneath the sheets as our mothers came to shake us awake for school. The sound rolled over our skin as we tried to turn away from it. One more minute, Mom. But there was nowhere to turn. It roared from everywhere. Suddenly, I could feel a sharp pain in my left hand. I gasped. But it was just Don gripping my hand, his nails digging into my palm. He was muttering things with his eyes closed. I'd never seen him that scared. A scream stuck in my throat, pushing to be let out. The ground around us shook. It felt like the sound was pulling us into one direction. Like a passing train, our senses followed along down the tracks. There was a scream from somewhere, somewhere outside the room. A woman screaming for someone named Kevin. Then the scream turned into a wail. It became Kevin! Don and I stared at each other. Was it over? We both inhaled deeply and held our breath as we waited. And it occurred to me how the whole thing felt almost polite. Like it was something unpleasant we had stumbled upon and were trying to ignore until it passed. The fetid homeless guy on the corner asking for change or gas passed on a subway car. Just hold your breath, and it will be over in a minute. The angry laugh got stuck, just like my scream. My free hand wandered up to touch Don's hair. I ran my fingers through it, expecting it to be disheveled, like after a long day at the beach. Then another carpet of sound rolled over us, and again we held our breath. Seconds felt like hours, or were they hours? It roiled over us and released us with a sudden jolt. Everything was still. The screams for Kevin had stopped. I rubbed Don's head, his hair still perfectly in place. Then I crawled into his arms, 
pushed my face into his chest, and screamed as loud as I could. Nothing about this was sexy like it was in the movies. It felt like death had breezed through us, and even though we were alive, we felt cold in its wake. Cold and foreign in our own bodies. Once I pulled myself together, we set up the bunker. Considering the amenities of most public fallout shelters, we were living above the grade. There was a main room, as well as two side rooms where my mouse colonies were housed. Thanks to the mice, our little bunker was the perfect place to be during a nuclear catastrophe. The mice I used for my experiments didn't have an immune system. In order for them to survive, everything had to be sterilized. Their water was sterile, the air was filtered, and face masks were on hand. Our room alone had enough clean water to last us a year. And since the air in the facility was filtered in-house and then recycled, no contamination from the outside could seep in. The face masks would come in handy once we left. We rationed the food I had brought into 14 neat piles of crackers, bags of nuts, and dried fruit. We also had two jars of peanut butter for calories and four cans of soup. After we'd rationed out the food, I built a toilet. I stationed the bathroom in one of the rooms with the mice. In an attempt to contain the smell, we layered the bin with their bedding. Even though we questioned our dignity, every time we crouched over that trash bin lined with a biohazard bag, at least we got to do it privately. We fell into the new routine easily. We woke around 10 in the morning, ate peanut butter on dried fruit or crackers for each meal, and read the books I'd brought. We also spent a lot of time napping. We were always exhausted, even though we barely moved. On the few occasions we had the energy, we made love on the thin blankets, the concrete hitting my spine. But the short moments of reprieve couldn't stunt the hollow feeling that had started to grow as the days wore on. We both dreaded and longed for the day we would leave the bunker. Two weeks is the recommended time to stay in a fallout shelter. Two weeks of food was all that I'd brought. Since two sound waves had rolled over us, I guessed it had been a surface hit. A surface hit meant there would be nuclear fallout falling from the sky. Dust and dirt kicked up during the explosion, scooped up and made airborne, glowing with radiation from the blast. The radioactive dirt would drop back down somewhere, but we had no way to predict where that might be. If we were lucky, it would travel out over the ocean and sink. If we weren't, it would settle right above our heads, waiting for us. Even though I was exhausted all day long, once I settled in for the night, a restlessness took hold of me. I found myself staring at the ceiling, or more often than not, at dawn. Some nights, I thanked God that we had survived. During the moments, he looked peaceful, blinded by sleep to what was happening. But most of the night, as I watched his cheeks twitch, tortured by the nightmares he wouldn't remember in the morning, I cursed the choices we'd made. I pretended that we were somewhere else, anywhere else, someplace far away in a big pillowy king-size bed. If only we had moved to some flyover state, then we'd be watching this disaster from a safe distance. Somewhere in this faraway place, 
where I'd be sitting in a big house in a big beautiful kitchen at one of those island things. Big kitchens have islands, and in my fantasy, a large flat screen hung from a wall above the doorway. I'd bake cookies and watch the news. When I was done, we would be able to talk about how crazy it all was, and then we'd go outside into our well-kept yard, and we wouldn't have to think about what would happen once we ran out of food. Don never lay awake at night. Instead, he grunted helplessly in his sleep, his arms and legs twitching as he fended off invisible demons. I tried to comfort him. I'd get in close, slide my hands along his arms and pull him in. It would stop the twitching, but only for a moment. I love you. He'd mumble as I pulled him in, then a few seconds of peaceful sleep. I love you too. I'd say and let my lips sink into a stubble that was turning to beard. Then I would kiss him, but he was always too drunk with sleep to reciprocate, and the twitching would return. Some nights, as I held him, I wondered where I'd be if I had never met him. I wondered if we would be there. The night we had met, everyone had acted like someone had figured out the formula for abandon and plopped it in our drinks. It had been on a friend's party bus during our early years at grad school. I had just broken up with a boyfriend of seven years and had moved to New York to shake him. The ex had been a fun enough guy, but for some reason I had stopped loving him sometime around the age of 23. It was no one's fault, but I should have taken less than five years to admit it. Even then, it felt like a failure. I had tried to make it work. Like a triangle-shaped peg, I'd shoved myself into a square hole until one day I just broke. I accepted the offer in New York, told him he didn't have to come with me, and fled. Maybe it was my fault. But I had never felt freer than the first day I lived on my own again. It felt like I was in a thousand places at once, moving light as air from one adventure, from one party to the next. Men were picked up, used, and discarded as I tried my new freedom on for size. But then, two, three months into my adventure, there was Don, seemingly out of nowhere. Innocence painted all over his skin, while underneath lay a confusion to figure out who he was wanted to be. His confusion made him as adventurous as me. Girls had been kissing boys, and boys had been kissing boys, and everyone had been kissing anyone who got too close. Faces, nameless as I tried to remember them in the darkness of the bunker. We had all been so young amidst that blur of hands and lips and hopeful touching. When I saw Don sitting across from me on the party bus, leaned up against his leather seat with a beer in his hand and smiling wearily at me like he was daring me to do something, I had felt an overwhelming urge to kiss him. And so I had kissed him. Don started to twitch more violently under the thin blanket, and I pulled him tighter as he jerked up a knee. Shh, you're safe. We're safe. Don't kick. There's no one else here. It didn't help. He kept on kicking. Lying awake at night with nothing but time, I tried to remember things that made me happy. The time we tried to save that bird that had flown against the window even though we knew it was too late. The time we saw a famous actor from a city bus and plastered up against the window trying to get a better look. 
and ended up taking a picture of a street sign causing no one to believe us. Or when we had road boats in Central Park with me at the rudders and him yelling, Faster woman, faster! And us dissolving into laughter. My lonely giggle in the dark, cold room felt like it was coming from someone else. The giggle's echo subsided and the dead silence settled in again. Then, from the door, about ten feet away from where we lay, I heard a faint rustling. I held my breath. Once in a while, I could hear an animal moaning at night, but it was not holding back, and from far away. Never had I heard hushed tones right outside the door. The movements outside seemed skittish, but not quite mouse-like. Had one of the larger animals gotten free and was now roaming the halls? I got out from under the blanket, rubbed my aching back, and made my way across the blue-gray concrete. Since I hadn't taken them off in over a week, my boots felt like a part of me, and I moved silently. As I got closer to the door, the sound stopped. I crouched down, straining to hear. With my head cocked to one side, I could make out strange slapping sounds drifting off into the distance. It sounded like wet flip-flops hitting the concrete, the hands or feet of some primate, perhaps. But by the time I stood back up, it felt like a dream. While I was up, I went to the bathroom, where dozens of mice stared at me as I pushed out what felt like a stick of gravel. Days of nothing but dried fruit and nuts had dehydrated us no matter how much water we drank. I stared back at them, watched as one gnawed at a food pellet, then defecated immediately. We're not so different, you and me. I told the tiny white creature and dumped some of the bedding into the bin. I was starting to feel more animal than human with every passing day, with every day that our departure from the bunker drew closer and closer. Dr. Hubert says I'm a hack when it comes to growing vegetables, and he's right. I used to try growing things in our apartment, and without fail, everything died. Eventually, I went to the flower shop around the corner and demanded their most low-maintenance plant. Just sun and some water every two weeks, the guy at the store assured me and handed me a succulent. It was beautiful, with purple and dark green leaves. I went home and proudly displayed the exotic-looking plant on the sill of the living room window, where it promptly started dying just three weeks after entering into my care. The leaves took on a strange red color and started to die off. First, the bottom leaves wilted, and then it spread to the top, where the remaining green leaves, once dark and beautiful, had turned light green and had begun stretching upward, like they were trying to get away from me. But I'm trying to be better now. I take great care of my garden. It's different when you're forgetting to water the soil can affect your meals. The soil may be slightly irradiated, but I can't bear to go without fresh vegetables during the summer months. After living off canned food for more than a year, I watched Dr. Hubert harvest fire-red peppers and giant cucumbers, and I begged him to take me under his green thumb. That's where I found him one afternoon, just out of the blue, hunched over his potatoes. After the initial confusion, he told me that he was a retired physics professor 
who had moved to New York from Germany after leaving his post at a university in Frankfurt. He tried living in the city, but he had hated it and moved to the suburbs of Westchester after just a year. When I told him that I had actually gone to school here at Einstein, he got very excited and cried, That's fantastisch! At first, I thought he had some sort of a lisp, but it turns out it's just his Germanness that causes him to add random sh sounds to a lot of his words. The same day I found him in the vegetable garden, he took me to where he had started to assemble his makeshift physics lab. This is going to be my most important machine, he exclaimed as he showed me the sound time traveler. Uh-huh. I replied skeptically and thought he was nuts. I slid back under my blanket beside Don and he startled awake. Every movement was so loud down there. What's wrong? I could feel his body tense. Nothing, I whispered. Go back to sleep. The moaning of the same forgotten, hungry animal echoed outside. But Don had already fallen back to sleep, more agitated than ever. I stroked his hair, but that just made it worse. Tossing and turning, he started talking to me, describing the nightmares inside his head. I think he needs to be tapped and have the CBC and CMP, right? Even though it sounded like gibberish to me, one thing became clear. When Don went to sleep at night, he wasn't with me, there in the bunker. He was somewhere else. He flung out his arm, almost punched me in the shoulder. Was he giving me whatever a tap was? I leaned into his chest, even though the cheap blankets between us made me sweat. She didn't die, did she? His head moved to face me, and for a second I thought he was awake. You're the attending, right? I am. I stroked his hair, and she's fine. Then I told him that she had been discharged yesterday, whoever she was. Don slept peacefully for the first time. No more kicking, no more punching, and I realized he hadn't been fighting against some invisible monster or demon. He had been fighting for the patients he had left upstairs when I had made him go underground with me. I had already forgotten about them, the people Don had tried to bring to safety, the reason he had been so late to our rendezvous point. But Don hadn't forgotten. He had left them upstairs to fend for themselves, and now they'd come all the way down there to haunt him. The next morning, we opened a new sleeve of crackers, a treat in Bunker World, and slathered them in peanut butter. We had grown so used to covering everything we ate in peanut butter that I couldn't remember what food tasted like without it. I asked Don how he was feeling. Okay, he muttered, but his eyes said, weary, strung out. I'd asked him once, years ago, what he'd do if anything like this were to happen, a nuclear disaster specifically. We had been lying in bed reading, and he told me that he'd want to die. Why live? He hadn't looked up from his book, but his eyebrows had knotted together, forming a V. Life would be over the way we know it. Have you never seen The Day After? The Day After is a movie that depicts not the usual, sexy, glorified versions of the end of days, but the realistic version of those movies. 
After the bomb drops and everyone is dying of radiation poisoning, society simply falls apart. No heroics, no last-minute cures, and Steve Gutenberg goes down just like everyone else. That's how you knew it was realistic. Don shuddered for emphasis, still not looking up and turned a page of his book. No way I'd want to be around for that. But we'd have each other. I had been only half pretending like this hurt my feelings. He sighed and looked at me. Fine, I guess, if there was a nuclear disaster, I'd try to live if you were there too. At the time, I thought this answer was satisfactory. My presence alone would be enough for him to want to keep going. But as we sat there, solemnly chewing our crackers and peanut butter, it seemed that everything I thought to bring up as conversation was pointless. We knew exactly what we'd eat that day and where. There probably was no movie playing nearby, no new exhibit at the Met. The only things to talk about were things we tiptoed around like world-class ballerinas. It dawned on me that maybe dragging Dawn underground with me had been selfish. Maybe it would have been better for him to stay upstairs with his patients. I pushed this thought out of my mind and attempted conversation. Bits of news and podcast facts I'd heard before their downloads ceased. But Don just smiled and rubbed my shoulder to let me know that he knew I was trying, but that I didn't have to. Later that day, when we grew bored of reading our books, we made love. Rough, anguished, almost tearful, boots on. Always with the fucking boots on. As we gathered around our rations, I was almost relieved to see that they were dwindling. Only five more days left and we were going back up. Whatever awaited us, I was ready to break through the boredom that had somehow started to feel as unbearable as the unknown. That night, I held Don as he thrashed in his sleep, kept thrashing no matter how many times I told them they'd been saved. All of them had been saved and gone home to their families. In response, he just gave me another tap. The next morning, just after I had popped a cashew into my mouth, it started. A heavy banging against the door. I almost choked on the nut. The sound was so loud. The rustling outside our door, the moans of the animal at night, they had all been so quiet in comparison. The racket made us wince. Were we being invaded? Was this it? We went instantly from hating the monotony to missing it desperately. People are funny that way. Safety and boredom play such a delicate balance in our minds. What is that? I stared at Don the cashew still tucked in my cheek. Don looked at me like he couldn't hear me over the noise, shrugged. We waited for something to happen. Then he spoke. It wasn't an invasion. It was just some guy. Please let me in. I'm so thirsty. Oh my God, please. I've been out here forever. Please let me in. The man sounded drunk. Then we could hear him slump against the door and slide to the ground. I furrowed my brow and turned to Don. I should have known what was about to happen. While my immediate reaction was to make sure the door was securely locked, Don's face had lit up. Looking at him, I knew we were about to have an argument, and I had a feeling that I was going to lose. 
After almost two weeks of nightmares, Don had finally found someone to take care of.